This is a Brickhouse production. Hey everybody, this is Aaron. Uh, this isn't typically how an episode starts. I, I understand that. Uh, I just want to thank everybody who listened to the first two episodes of the podcast. Uh, thank you so much for the support and for listening. I know there was quite a bit of get quite a bit of a gap between episode one and two. That's really because uh, got a lot going on in my life between work and the home life. My wife and I have actually just recently moved, and we're also expecting addition to the family. Uh, our daughter is going to be born pretty much any day now, so we've got quite a bit going on. But I do hope to continue with this and be more consistent about it. Well, as consistent as I can be about it. So, in addition, you might notice that the sound quality on this episode might be a bit echoey. I'm going to try to fix it in post, but if I can't, this is unfortunately just what the episode's going to sound like. Um, we moved into a bigger space, which is nice for us, but not so great for the sound quality of my podcast. So thank you all so much again, and without further ado, let's get on with the episode. everybody welcome to the house of bricks podcast again my name is aaron thank you so much for joining me so this is episode three political ideology and the origins of the left and right paradigm you're probably wondering uh why this episode is so much different than the previous i know a lot of people got a lot of good feedback on the previous episode with living wage and i'm not quite done with this yet i'm not quite done with that topic yet i don't quite have a format for the podcast so Chances are, as time goes on, there are topics I'll return to, I'll do more research on, uh, I may make multiple parts, I may just do a one-and-done episode. So I have a lot, and polit- uh, not just political ideology, but economics is quite a complicated topic, so chances are I will actually go back to wages and minimum wage, living wage, all that at some point or another. It's just not going to be in this episode, because this episode was actually inspired by a conversation I had with a really good friend. And it is sort of related to some of the ideas I elaborated upon in the previous episode, though not quite. So how did this episode come about? I was actually having a conversation with a really good friend, and I don't quite remember how the topic came up. But I had mentioned a concept called eco-fascism. And to some of you, that probably sounds like a wild term or wild concept. You're probably thinking, Aaron, what the hell is eco-fascism? It's complicated, but that's not really the point of it all. Ecofascism is technically, technically, a left-leaning ideology, despite the fact that fascism is a right-wing or right-leaning ideology. It's technically the most extreme you can get if you're trying to measure politics just purely on the left-right paradigm. So that was actually what happened. I was having a conversation with my friend and had specifically mentioned that fascism is a right-leaning ideology, and he was kind of baffled by that. He was like, what do you mean that fascism is a right-wing ideology? Isn't fascism authoritarian in nature with a really large government? As far as I'm concerned, isn't you know the right side of the political spectrum more in favor of a smaller government or more in favor of personal freedoms? So 
and that's not even really necessarily the case and i'm going to get into why that's a very bad read in this episode specifically that's essentially what this whole episode's gonna be about so we're having this conversation and when he said that it was like huh how can i break this down or how can i make this more clear not that the person i was talking to was stupid because the person i was talking to is actually a very intelligent individual but sometimes when trying to comprehend concepts like political belief systems or ideological ideas it can actually be a lot more complicated so i tried to make it simple and is more easily understood by saying well you know if you're measuring politics from just a purely left and right-wing perspective which is grossly unable to actually measure complicated political ideas but if you're going to measure it that way, communism is all the way on the left side of the political spectrum, and fascism would be all the way on the right side of the political spectrum. I said, imagine communism. Fascism is just the right-wing version of communism. For anybody that is even remotely familiar with political sciences and philosophy, uh, you people who just heard me say that are probably going to want to bash your head against the table because you will know that that is, first off, grossly inaccurate and misrepresentative of both of those ideas so that that's not really the case but that was the best thing i could do at the time to try to make it clear and it still didn't quite make sense and that was when i realized this is actually the majority of americans not to say that i'm the smartest dude on the earth i'm just a guy with a microphone talking <laughs> with a passing interest in a lot of philosophical concepts uh, politics and things like that but I know a little bit more than the, the average person. And all I could think was, if I'm talking to somebody who really is intelligent, has more life experience than I do, and they don't quite understand the intricacies of political thought, then what does the average person really think about these things? And that was sort of alarming to me to think about. So I started to do the research, and I actually did quite a bit of research, and I came to the conclusion this is a lot more complicated than even I realized. And the left-right paradigm, I mean, I had an idea that it was grossly unable to actually quantify political ideas. I just didn't realize how poorly it was at categorizing political thought, ideology, and belief. That's really what this episode is going to be about. So without further ado, what are the origins of left and right? Based upon, you know, political discourse here in the U.S., a lot of people would probably think that we've been using these terms for a long time, and the political left and right is a really old idea. I hate to say it, and I hate to break it to you, because it was a surprise to me, but this idea, this concept is not actually very old. In fact, the first time, or even where we get our usage or our concept, or at least the foundation of the concept of the left and right wing in America today came out of the French Revolution, really 1789. That's not really that long ago. To get into it, shortly after the storming of the Bastille, and I'm probably going to butcher this name, but it's Jean-Sylvain Bailly, was appointed mayor of France. And the National Assembly was brought together to try to move France away from a monarchy, or what was called the National Assembly. There was a more specific name for it, but I'm, the French Revolution is a whole other can of worms. 
and it's a lot more complicated than what I'm going to get into. I'm just going to get into the basics of it for the purpose of the episodes. They appointed, the National Assembly got together, and this was a group of people of delegates that were meant to represent the French people, specifically three different classes of French society, in an attempt to move France away from the monarchy. They saw what had happened during the American Revolution, and France kind of wanted their own version of that. Obviously, if you know anything about history, it didn't work anywhere near the way they wanted it to. Royalty was still a factor. They started drafting France's constitution during the revolution, and unfortunately, royalty and the monarchy were still a factor in France when their constitutional ideas were being drafted. The left and right basically came from this. The National Assembly would gather in a specific space. In this case, it was actually in the tennis court of Castle Versailles, and the mayor and King Louis would sit in the center of the assembly or sit in the center of the room. And the left and the right was solely based upon where people sat in the room. The people on the left side are sitting to the left of the mayor and the king. And there were 1,500 of these delegates, what they called deputies. The people sitting to the left side of King Louis and the mayor wished for the king's veto power to be limited. In other words, King Louis could not absolutely strike down laws and delegations that would affect the lives of the French people. And they also wanted to move away from the church. They wanted to move away from tradition, the monarchy, and they wanted to move towards modernism. Whereas those sitting on the right side of the assembly wanted the king's veto power to stay absolute. They wanted King Louis to be able to say, I don't like this law that you proposed to me, therefore it's not happening. And these people were more in favor of religion, more specifically the Catholic Church at the time. They supported the monarchy and wanted to remain traditional in a sense. So the whole origin of left and right was literally just based upon these two groups of people in France that sat on one side of an assembly or another. And that's where the origin of the term started. It wasn't even really that complicated an idea in the beginning. When we measure left and right, these ideas started in French and started to sort of expand from there onward, pretty much. The early 19th century and into the 20th century, they moved from France out to other European countries, eventually making their way to the UK and then those ideas by about the mid to late 20th century really made their way to the U.S., though we didn't really have an idea about those things till much later. As French politics started to evolve, the left and the right really started to be defined by people according to the status quo. In other words, when we think of a status quo, we think of a, of a standstill. French politics evolved from simply the left and the right and started to break into subgroups. All were defined based upon what they wanted to happen within the framework of government or what would happen in accordance or compared to the status quo. So from left to right, it became groups that were called or people that were grouped into what was called the radical group who wished to change not only French government policy or political policy, they wanted to do away with the framework of the French government entirely. They wanted to tear it all down. 
and start something new. And these were people that were considered radicals. These were the people that wanted to move away from everything that was pre-established and the foundations of it and move into the future or move into the what they would consider the modern era. Then you had liberals who were slightly to the right of them. So radicals would be all the way to the left in this case. And then liberals are slightly to the right of them, close to the center, but they're still on the left. So liberals wanted strong changes within the pre-established framework of France's government. They didn't want to do away with the system that was there. They just wanted to do a lot of changes to the system, the currently existing system. Then in about the middle, you had people that were called moderates and they wanted, you know, just a little bit of change. They slow, steady change to the system. Just to the right of them, you had people that were called conservatives. If these terms are starting to sound familiar, it's because these terms are where we've gotten our ideas and concepts for American politics, and it starts to become a problem, and you'll see why as I get later into the episode. So conservatives wanted very little change to French government. In fact, they would prefer it if it didn't change at all. They just wanted things to remain as is. And then you had all the way to the right a group that was considered or referred to as reactionaries. And reactionaries, imagine, again, the status quo is the standstill. So the radicals wanted to move beyond the standstill. Everybody else, these other three groups in the middle, wanted a little bit of change or some change or maybe no change. They just wanted to stay within the status quo. Reactionaries are the polar opposite of the radicals. These people didn't want to move forward. In fact, they wanted to move politically backwards. They wanted to return to the monarchy of France. They wanted things to not stay the same. They wanted them to go back to the way things used to be. That was, we had left and right, and now we've broken into these five different subgroups as French politics started to evolve. These ideas didn't just stop there. As time went on, these ideas started to gain popularity in other parts of Europe. And other countries and cultures started to not just adopt the left-right paradigm, they started to adapt it to their own ideas and government. These terms in the 20th century went on to be compiled as conservative, or the right side of the political spectrum, liberal, which would be considered the center of the political spectrum, and socialist, which would be considered all the way to the furthest left side of the political spectrum. So the issue, by the time these ideas started to branch outside of France, is that the definitions of left and right were beginning to change really, really, really quickly. And not just change, they were starting to splinter into smaller and smaller subgroups as people with like-minded ideas wanted to really be able to label their ideas and figure out what exactly it was that they believed with people that shared their ideas. What do you call our belief system? What do you call our political ideas? So people wanted to, they wanted something more than just these basic terms that had emerged out of the revolution. A perfect example of where these ideas, especially why left and right is not really capable of measuring complicated political ideology, and the left-right paradigm really starts to fall apart under the weight. A perfect example is actually Vladimir Lenin and the Bolshevik Party. 
as weird as that sounds, but I'm going to explain why. So Lenin, and there wasn't, in the grand scheme of history, there actually wasn't much time between the October Revolution and the French Revolution. Sure, to us it may seem like a long time. It's a little over 100 years, but in the grand scheme of human history, it is not very far at all. So Russia was in sort of a fever pitch during about the early 20th century, around 1917-1918, the October Revolution and the Russian Revolution were not far off from there or were actually concurrently happening. So Lenin was heavily influenced by what the French had done uh, upon reading up on history. He was very heavily influenced by what had happened in France a century prior. And at this point, the Bolsheviks, which he was in charge of, were pushing to end Russian imperialism. At the time, ironically, Lenin considered the Bolshevik movement the political center of Russia. Not the left, not the right, the political center. And if you know anything about the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks, which splintered off of them, you would probably not, in accordance with, you know, our ideas of left and right wing today, define the Bolsheviks as a center ideology. (laughs) But I'm sure everybody would like to think of themselves as the political center in the grand scheme of things, which is woefully, woefully inaccurate. Yeah, ironically, Lenin considered the Bolsheviks the political center of Russia. In fact, by today's standards, uh, what Lenin originally wanted Russia to become was based upon this concept that he called democratic centralism. Once the Bolsheviks had taken over, the ultimate end goal of his plan was to bring about what was called, what he called, democratic centralism. So, by today's standards, none of his ideas would be measured by the political center. See where the the problem is? And Lenin considered himself the political center and the Bolsheviks the political center because really, there were people more extreme than the Bolsheviks, and the Bolsheviks were pretty extreme. Uh, The Mensheviks, which sputtered off of them, would technically be to the left of the Bolsheviks. And Even then, there were subgroups in Russia because it was such a politically tumultuous time in the country. There were subgroups that were even more extreme than the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks. And then there were a lot of people that still wanted the Russian monarchy to continue to be a thing. And they preserved tradition and the church and all of those things. So technically, in some regard, I could see how Lenin would like to position his ideas as the political center of the culture at the time. This was really a way of differentiating his group and his ideas and his party from all of the other tiny little political subgroups that were happening in Russia uh, at the time. The reason that this starts to fall apart is because there were so many subgroups by the time, you know, the early 20th century happened in Europe that it started to become really hard to just call yourself left or right-leaning. And even if you base things upon the five subgroups that I mentioned, uh, during sort of the political evolution of the French Revolution, it still became really hard to classify certain people according to these subgroups. What's even harder is the fact that if any of the terms that I used, especially concerning the French Revolution, sounded familiar, it's because we're still kind of sort of trying to use these ideas to define American politics today, which doesn't really work. These terms 
had very specific meanings in very specific context during a very specific time in history. So when somebody in America tries to define themselves as a liberal or conservative or left-leaning or right-leaning, it, it doesn't really work. And it's become a bigger problem than I think we realize. A perfect example is the term radical during France's revolution, and I used the term earlier, was in reference to post-French revolutionary politics. A radical was defined and was solely defined as a revolutionary or egalitarian movement. So if you were somebody who was in support of an egalitarian movement and a revolutionary movement, which would make a significant amount of changes, you were considered a radical. By today's terms, and this is why defining terms is so important when talking to people about complicated ideas, according to today's standards, radical is synonymous with an extremist. Oh, you're a radical, that makes you an extremist. But that wasn't how they used the term a little over 100 years ago. The whole left and right paradigm had very specific definitions and applications that don't really work when we try to measure political beliefs today. It becomes even harder when you take into account something like the reactionary ideas and the radical or progressive ideas of France's left and right groupings or political groupings. Even these ideas were really, really complicated. Progressive ideas were just as complicated as reactionary ideas, and this isn't a discourse on French politics, but safe to say it wasn't straightforward. So the context for how we use these terms really, really, really matters. And really, the reason that measuring our politics by some of these, uh, using some of these terms doesn't really work is if we were to use the definition of conservative according to revolutionary French politics, a communist citizen, for example, who is pro-communism, who lives in a communist society or a communist country, would be considered a conservative according to the context and the society and the culture in which they live. See how that doesn't really work? Because chances are, if you have even a remote or mild interest in politics in America, you would not consider a person like that a conservative-minded individual. This is a very real issue. And despite this very real issue, the concept of left and right, it didn't stop propagating. It didn't just stop in Europe. It eventually made its way to, you know, further out from Europe by the 1920s. Uh, a lot of political discourse in Europe, and more specifically in London, was starting to be shaped by the terms of left wing and right wing. Eventually, the left wing and right wing paradigm made its way to America. But funny enough, we didn't even start talking about American politics in these terms until about the 1960s during the height of the civil rights movement. It's kind of funny. We haven't been referring to political discourse in America this way for very long. And yet here we are. Not that much long. I mean, we're a little less than 100 years from the civil rights movement. I mean, eight decades, 80 years, give or take, 60, 80 years. And that's not a long time. If you haven't noticed thus far as history has gone on and political views become more and more complicated and diverse, the left and right paradigm becomes increasingly 
restrictive. It doesn't really work. Most people, especially in America, and one of the other reasons I'm doing this episode is because I think in first world countries, and specifically what I've noticed in my own country, again, I'm an American citizen, I'm a U.S. citizen, when we hear left and right, the first thing that comes to mind is the American two-party system and political systems and groups in reference to left and right and maybe liberal conservative. But other places don't really classify politics as straightforward as the way we do it. And most of the time, we as Americans don't really think in terms of political ideology or political thought or political philosophy, really in terms of anything other than our own ideas and our own problems. I mean, a perfect example is Germany. Their right, technically their right wing political parties, like to be considered the political center of the country. And that's that's a modern, that's in the modern era. In the best way I can put it, if we want to try to define left and right by the modern American standard, and even this doesn't really work, is the left is for liberty, equality, progress, uh, and some form of internationalism. Typically, they're in favor of more government or a larger government, or not necessarily a larger government, but they want the government to do more things, which would, in some arbitrary terms, be defined as a larger government. And more often than not, these people might be called liberal. And then you have people on the right side, which may be more in favor of authority and hierarchy and tradition, nationalism, which is not the same as patriotism, and a lot of people don't like the term nationalism, but I would like to talk about that in a future episode. In fact, that'll probably be in part two of this episode. They're typically in favor of less government and might be referred to as conservatives. Even this doesn't really work. I mean, to try to sum up certain things, and people have been trying to figure out what the American left and right believe for actually quite a long time. In fact, political scientist and Italian philosopher of law, Norberto Babio, attempted to sum up the left and right in the simplest of terms. And he said, and I'm quoting, the left supports egalitarianism and the right supports elitism. And, unquote. And people are still, and that's even an oversimplification of what most people in America really do believe. As recently as 2016, people are still trying to define what the American left and right believe, that it still doesn't really work. Um... Leon P. Baradat and John A. Phillips attempted to, they're two authors, two American authors, they tried to gather together the concise ideas of the left and right and their beliefs, and they defined the left wing as anti-hierarchy, anti-property, in favor of change, uh, the, the amount of change varies, and they want enforced equality, whereas the right wing is pro-forms of hierarchy, pro-property, in favor of most traditional ideas, and they believe that people are inherently equal. And even those don't really work, because I've met people that would consider themselves left-leaning that don't really want the government to do, they don't really want the government to interfere in the affairs of regular people, and then there are people on the right side of the political spectrum, or what they would consider right-wing, most neocons or neoconservatives that I've met. You know, 
they want just as much government enforcement as the left-wing groups that they criticize. So these definitions don't really work because now we're trying to take these really simple definitions that apply to very specific historical contexts from a little over 100 years ago, and we're trying to stretch them over very complicated modern ideas. You see how you see how this is a problem? So if we can't classify things as left or right, what are the alternatives? What do we do? Because really, left and right, or calling people left and right wing, is really only good for putting people in boxes. And what I, I find so funny about American politics in particular is that we love to put people in boxes. And what I find even more fascinating is not only do people in most political discourse, not only do they like to put their opponents in boxes, they like to put themselves in boxes. And I've even seen people that claim they don't like to be put in boxes or they don't like it when people are put in boxes try so, so hard to fit into a political mold or political idea that they would like to define themselves or label themselves as. American politics is really, really insulated. And unfortunately, I think a lot of times Americans, and I have included myself in this, we like to think that our problems politically, culturally, on a societal level, we're really the only people with problems. But in the five seconds I was saying this, a child was used as a suicide bomber by some terrorist sect in the Middle East. In the next 10 seconds, I'm talking 10,000, 100,000, maybe a million people might starve to death in some third world country. In another second, I'm talking, there is probably a revolution going on in another country of people who are dissatisfied with their government. There are still uh, infighting and civil wars happening in a lot of third world countries to this day that have been going on for the past several decades. But you won't hear about any of these things in the news cycle in America. You won't because it doesn't drive money. It doesn't drive clicks. It doesn't drive views. It doesn't drive the cycle of fear and the cycle of reaction. It doesn't make money. So insulation and reaction are really not good things. If we're trying to get away from being reactionary, if we're trying to get away from pointing fingers and calling people left or right, or trying to cram people into these really, really tiny groups, what are the alternatives? Well, it turns out political scientists and political philosophers and political pundits have been trying to figure out this idea for decades, in fact. As far back as the 1950s, psychologist Hans Einsenck, and I probably butchered that name, realized shortly after World War II that the two extremist political ideologies that had been so prevalent in the previous decade, which would be Nazism and fascism, which are essentially the same thing, Nazism is, just a, is a form of fascism, and communism and socialism, in practice, while they weren't 100% the same, these ideologies had profound similarities and outcomes in their practice, and he was really confused as to why. Why would the communists, which are technically the extreme left and the extreme right, be so similar in nature? 
he couldn't wrap his head around it. He's so he said, "There's got to be a better way to categorize or understand these things." So, if you imagine the left and the right paradigm, if you stretch out your hands in front of you and you visualize a straight line, and your left hand is the left side of the political spectrum, your right hand is the right side of the political spectrum, and there's a straight line from left to right. What Einstein wanted to do was add a different axis. He wanted to add something to that straight line. So he added a vertical axis, which would measure something different than just the straight left and right. So if right wing and left wing were on the horizontal line from one side to the other, if you picture the vertical line at the very top, you had things being measured or beliefs being measured by authoritarian. And at the very bottom, you had ideas being measured as democratic. And people would kind of sort of fall within a grid system. And this was a good start. And while it seemed effective, it actually had its critics. More specifically, one of the largest vocal critics of Einstein's ideas was Jerry Purnell who was a polymath. In other words, he was a scientist that practiced multiple, or he had quite a bit of expertise in multiple scientific disciplines. And in 1963, he claimed that Einstein's model didn't account for certain other human factors. So using the Einstein model as a foundation, he created his own chart, which was coined the Purnell chart. And he added human morality into the mix of trying to categorize political and ideological belief systems. Further still, a third chart similar to Einstein's and Purnell's emerged as the Bryson McDill model in 1969. And then further still, David Nolan, an American libertarian, created the Nolan chart, which was again a play on the previous political charts only this time, he changed the shape and added the elements of economic freedoms versus personal freedoms as attempted measurements at measuring people's political and social beliefs. Then, in about 2001, well really in 2001, the political compass test was created and is actually on a site of the same name, thepoliticalcompass.com. And this kind of takes the best of these political measurements and it condenses them in an easy-to-take test, and people are still taking this test today. And really, the political compass has been, while it's not the best thing, it's probably the best thing that we have for the average individual, and it's probably the best thing that we have for sort of starting to get an idea of measuring or categorizing political uh, beliefs and ideologies and understanding where people fall in certain categories because other political analysts and scientists have tried to come up with more and more complicated charts um, to try to measure political ideology but the more complicated the chart gets it either starts to not make sense to the average person or the average person starts to lose interest and they almost start to lose their value in actually measuring or categorizing political ideas. So really, the political compass is probably the best system we have. And even that is kind of 
woefully under-equipped to measure every single facet of political belief systems. And I'll probably get into that in the following episode. And really, I think that does it for now. If you couldn't tell already, this is a fairly complicated topic. And I actually realized even before recording that it was going to be a fairly complicated topic. So this is actually part one. And chances are episode four, well, really episode four is going to be a part two. And depending on how much I cover in that episode, this may even be three parts due to the complicated nature of the topic. This has been Political Ideology, part one, the origins of left and right wing. Based upon everything I said, you may think that I know exactly what I'm talking about. You may think that uh, the research I did was relevant and it was well thought out and it was well outlined, or you may think, Aaron, you're you're an idiot. You're a moron. I don't know why I even spent the last 40 minutes listening to you. And regardless, as always, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're listening to this podcast. Whether you agree with me or disagree with me, I'm happy to have you because that's the whole point of this show. It's to bring people together with differing ideas and trying to start discussion. This has been the House of Bricks podcast, episode three. Thank you so much for joining me to tear it apart brick by brick, examine it, and put it all back together. And I hope you join me in the following episode to further expand upon the topic of political ideology. Thank you so much, everybody, for your time. And I hope to be hearing from you all soon. Join me in the next one and have a good one, everyone. Bye-bye. This has been a Brickhouse production. Thank you so much for listening.